I am actually very excited to be with you guys. I thank Adam for the opportunity, and I thank Adam for waking you guys up, right? Everybody's awake. There'll be no sleeping. There's no reason. You got your blood pumping now, right? Uh, so I do want to start this morning or this afternoon uh, with just a little background as to how I came to this message, not just because Adam asked me to do it, although that's a pretty good reason. Uh, but a few weeks ago, I was asked to preach at a little uh, church called Nexus, uh, and it was the very first part of January, which if you go by the church calendar, would be the Sunday of Epiphany. And, uh, okay, we're just going to jump forward just a little bit. Uh, so I get this call from Adam about preaching on the 23rd, right, preaching for you guys here at Providence, and what well, the timing of his call was pretty interesting, and I haven't even told him this, the timing was pretty interesting because just the day before, I've had this little God chat, I do that sometimes with him, and, and I, you know, I'm saying, all right, God, you know, I've, I've been kind of struggling, and I've been back from Africa for about a year and a half now, and man, I'm just having this hard time, which he already knew, by the way, so wasn't telling him anything new, but I'm having this chat with him. I'm like, I just really need your direction. I mean, I don't know what I'm doing next. I don't know what I'm doing now. You know, I'm trying to make all these plans. Nothing seems to be lining up. All right, God, give me direction. And then the, the call, right? So I'm like, really? Okay. But I told Adam at the time, wait, let me think about it. Let me think about it. You know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, really, God? But I'm just thinking, all right, Adam, I'll, I'll let you know tomorrow. I'll let you know. And, well, I guess you can tell I said yes, right? So next day, I, I text him and say, yeah, I'm in to do this thing. And I'm still with my really God thing. And uh, after I said yes, then the next step, and Adam can attest to this, all right, now what am I going to preach? Right? Okay, God. Yeah, you made me say yes. Now, now put it on my heart, right? What, what do you want me to, what is this message you want me to bring? And he just kept pushing me back to that epiphany thing. And I'm like, okay, first off, first off, epiphany was like two weeks ago, right? I can't, I can't give a message that, okay, I mean, we're on the 23rd. I can't go back and give this message about epiphany. I think I have a, uh, I think I actually have the definition of epiphany. So I was thinking in terms of those first two, right? This church calendar thing, this, this time of, of a season where you can read it, right? So that's what I'm thinking, and then, and kind of the second part, that third, the third definition is what he kind of smacked me in the back of the head. I had an epiphany about epiphany in that the message of epiphany isn't so much about the wise men. The message, the story, just happens to have the wise men in it, right? My next argument with God, I mean, he, he, he got me past that one with the definition, and, but my next argument was, yeah, but you don't want me to go to Providence and give them a recycled, you know, re-gifting the sermon that I preached somewhere else, they're going to know. But he had an answer for that, too. He seems to do that, right? His answer was that I wasn't recycling this message because I wasn't done learning it yet. So, unfortunately, because I'm still learning this lesson, you guys get to hear the recycled 
sermon. <laughs> um, since the beginning of the year, you know, Adam's been talking about detours, right? He's been talked last week. We talked about even G- Jesus had detours. Um, well, today's sermon is a detour sermon, and I don't mean it's about a detour. This whole sermon is a detour. When I sat down uh, to write it for for Nexus, I actually wrote two versions of this sermon. Y'all can take a deep breath. You don't have to hear both of them, right? Okay, we're not going to be here that long, right? Um, now, the first one I wrote, there was nothing wrong with it. I mean, it was, it was perfectly good, and I could have kept that one, had it in my little notebook, stood up, and felt good about that first message. I mean, it had a great opening story, yeah? Great opening, and it had this great segue into the, into the message, and, and then... Even though I had read the scripture probably about a thousand times, reading it and reading about it and reading again, and then it's like the hundred millionth time that I read this, again, like that definition of epiphany, there was this dawning that, man, I've missed something important in this scripture. God's like, "Uh uh-huh, there's something you didn't see here, and it's like a bright, shining light. See, I had this plan when I wrote the first sermon, it was just my plan was to get you guys, the, the audience, my plan was to get you to put yourselves into the Matthew text, right? Actually, my plan was even more detailed than that. My plan was to make you identify yourselves with the wise men, right? I mean, that's what this whole epiphany thing is about. So my plan was to get you to Place yourself in their sandals. We're going to go ahead and take a look at Matthew. We're going to be, if you want to check your Bibles, it's uh, Matthew 2. We're going to be looking at 1 through 12. It should also be up here for us. And I'm going to read from the ESV version. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, Where is the Christ to be born? And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And O you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. We've heard that story a lot, right? 
and the tellings of the Christmas story, the retellings of the Christmas story. Why would we not just think this is about the wise men, right? So my focus the whole time I planned that first sermon, it was on the wise men. And then that bright shining light showed me that those guys are not the only ones in the story. King Herod is there too. Once I realized that, I thought, man, how egotistical was that for me to just say, I'm going to make you be like the wise men, right? You're going to fit into those sandals. You're going to fit in those robes. It'll be perfect. Yeah. And then it came kind of more clear that how wrong it was to make, for me to try to make you to fit into a mold that I wanted you to be in just to make my sermon work, right? Yeah, it's kind of like, well, it'd be kind of like me trying to make myself fit into uh, the genes of Amy Wood over there, right? Ain't going to happen. It is not a fit. <laughs> yeah, not going So truthfully, truthfully, you know, at the time I was thinking, man, it would be so much easier to give that other sermon, that wise men's sermon, much easier because it was an easier message. But I think that, you know, if I had continued with my plan, if I just said, no, I wrote this other sermon, it's mine, I'm going to do it. I think that if I had done that, instead of, you know, you guys leaving, feeling encouraged, feeling like you were like the Magi, that there's a good chance that there would be some leaving with exactly the opposite feeling, feeling disappointed and feeling discouraged because I made you feel like you were trying to fit into somebody else's genes too. So we're going to take a look at Epiphany. And I'm going to kind of make it look a little different. Um, we're going to look at the people who are in this story. And I really have a good imagination, all right? So things go through my head like a movie. So we are going to be on. I should have made popcorn for you because I want you to be a part of this experience. I'm going to make you use your minds. I'm going to make you picture some things, all right? And we're going to start... We're going to start with the palace. We're talking about King Herod. He doesn't live in any shabby little broke-down shack, does he? I mean, a palace. And it's so big and so grand that you can see it from anywhere. No matter where you are, you can see that thing. And if you look really close, you can kind of make out a figure on the balcony even, right? Kind of, you can see him there. Can't really tell, but he is dressed to the nines. I mean, he has got the robe, and he has got the crown, and he's got it going on, and I mean, he is important. He is self-made, and well, he has proven to everyone he should prove things to, right, Octavian? Caesar now, I mean, he has proven to them that he can go out there and he can make things happen. He'll do whatever it takes to get and to keep his power. I mean, he has so much power, that guy right there, that guy on the balcony, he's got so much power. The only other person who has more power than him is Caesar himself. And he stands there on that balcony. He probably did that a lot, you know, that he is out there surveying his kingdom, that kingdom that he built. He looks out over Jerusalem thinking, my city, right? 
He looks towards the temple. He built this amazing temple. I mean, the biggest thing they had ever seen. I did that. You know, he's puffing up and he's proud and, yeah, he's done a lot. I mean, all this power, all these possessions. But today, you may not can tell it from where we are, our vantage point, but today he is kind of also angry. He's got this anger boiling inside him, right? He's like kind of starting to pace even because the anger has started small and now it's building and it's getting bigger. And he's thinking about these guys. You know, he's heard of these guys who came into the courts. You know what they had the nerve to ask? These guys asked, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Yeah, I can see him, right? King of the Jews, pounding his fist maybe. You know, he's, oh, that anger building. I'm king of the Jews. You can almost hear him. Even from where we are, can you almost hear him now? I am king of the Jews. They appointed me. The, Ro- the Roman Senate gave me all of this. This is mine. If these foreigners, if these dudes want to come in here and, and bow down to someone, they should be bowing to me. After all, don't they know who I am? my accomplishments, my fame. Don't they know how much money I have? Don't they know I'm called Herod the Great? So for Herod, for this guy pacing on the balcony, everything, his entire existence is wrapped around what he has, his power, his prestige, his wealth, his achievements. And he had always been willing to do, he had sacrificed everything to get those things and to keep them. I mean, he had tricked people. He had bribed people. He had killed people. He had killed his own family members in order to get what he had. Nothing was sacred to him except those things. So by now, you know, those, those words from those men kept playing in his head, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Whoever these men are, oh, like this anger in his voice now. Whoever these men are, they're not going to take my power. I can hear him. I am king of the Jews. But at some point during this tirade, at some point during this pacing and talking to himself, he had to remember something he had heard, right? This prophecy thing. Wait, I think, okay, wait, yeah, there's something I'm... I can't grasp the whole story. So uh, he gathered into the throne room, his chief priests and the scribes. And here, can you picture this now? We're, we're off of the balcony. We're in this big room, this, this room that he has with tables, and he's got his throne up there, and he's got these scribes running around because they don't want to make him mad, right? So they're pulling open their scrolls. They're reading. They're talking to each other, whispering, no, you tell him. Uh-uh, you tell him. So one of the scribes, whoever draws the short straw, They go and they say, okay, we found this, and they begin to read from the prophet Micah. But you, Bethlehem, can you kind of hear Herod snicker now? Bethlehem. (laughs) Yeah, that one-horse town. But you, Bethlehem, though you're the least among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel. Oh, I think Herod must have just let out a big sigh, right? What nonsense. (laughs) Rulers do not come from little farm villages 
like Bethlehem. Those priests are wrong. They're mistaken. I have nothing to fear. Fear does that funny thing, though, right? It keeps talking, so he must have thought, but just in case. Just in case. Well, Matthew tells us that Herod called a messenger, and he said, all right, go get those guys. Bring those wise men here. I want to talk to them in private. So we know that Herod meets with the wise men in private, and uh, he had to be a little impressed when they walked in the room, right? I mean, they were men of power. They were men, um, they kind of had an air about them too, just like Herod did. They wore nice clothes. They spoke really eloquently. Um, They kind of seemed important. We know that Herod listened to them. He gave them, you know, their five minutes, and, and this whole time when he's listening, he's hatching this plan. He's, yeah. Hmm. You know, he's thinking, uh, I mean, he knew who they were by now, right? He knew he wasn't just talking to some yahoos from the desert. I mean, he knew that they were the royal advisors to the king of Persia. He would have known also that their official title was magi, magicians, right? Men who practiced the secret arts that were forbidden in Jewish law. Their main job was to study the skies look at the stars, and interpret those signs so that the king would know what to do next, right? So Herod had to be thinking, yeah, they look good on the outside, but magicians, really? (laughs) Yeah, I don't have to put much stock in what they're saying here. We, reading uh, Matthew's account, we know that eventually he looked at them and he says, yeah, go and search diligently for that child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. If that were a movie, we'd probably be cueing evil laughter, right? I can just hear that laughter. <laughs> you know? So I think that, you know, as Herod watched those magi leave, as they left the room, that anger was probably starting to dissipate just a little bit. But not because he was feeling comfortable. It's because something else was starting to grow inside him. Something that this man of power probably hadn't felt for a really long time. You know, he probably started to feel a little scared. It's easy to discount them as magicians because, you know, we don't believe in that, right? But he also knows as people who study the stars, they knew what was up there. They knew wasn't what was new up there, that was their job. They studied those guys, they studied those stars, and they knew they had seen something new. And that was a star of a king, and it was rising of all places right over his empire. Maybe, just maybe, maybe. Fear kept whispering in his ear, maybe those priests are right. Maybe there is a new king. Maybe his days were numbered. I can see him pacing back and forth, one end of the room to the other, pacing. I'm king of the Jews, just as he had said on the balcony, trying to convince himself. I am king of the Jews. I mean, I have killed for power before, and when those foreigners... When they find that baby, when they find that baby, 
with a star in the sky. I will kill him too. He was sure of this plan, right? Pacing, pacing. We're going to kind of leave Herod pacing and stewing, all right? We're going to leave him in that throne room to himself. We're going to kind of follow the magi out into the night. This would be when the movie tempo picks up, right? Because now there's a sense of excitement. This is the good part. Yeah. I mean, imagine the excitement of those magi. Not only did they know where they were going, but they came out of the palace, and there it was, that same star that was shining in the sky again, only this time it was a lot brighter, and it was clearly pointing the way for them. I mean, imagine, I can see them getting on those camels, right? And they're talking to each other, and they're, they're six miles. Hey, guys, we're six miles from Bethlehem. I mean, the scribes had told them where this was going to take place. After all that time, you know, a lot of scholars say that it probably took them somewhere around two years. After all that time, now they were six miles, a few hours from Bethlehem. I think they probably had a discussion. Hey, remember when we first saw that star? Remember that night? Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, we were back in we were back in Persia, and I mean, it was the sun was setting, and it was getting dark, and and the mountains. Well, we had looked to the east, and we'd looked to the west, and we'd been searching the skies, and then, just over that mountain, it appeared, and it was so different, and it had such intensity, and it was so bright. Yeah, we couldn't stop looking at it. Remember that? Remember that night? I mean, it was so intense, and it was so different that they could not look away. They all, they felt pulled to it. They felt compelled to follow it, and we know that they followed it. I mean, two years, right, on the back of this camel, two years in the dust, two years over terrible roads. I mean, we have a hard time sitting in these pews for 20 minutes, right? Two years on a camel, and now... Here they were, coming to the gates of Bethlehem, seeing that star, that star that they had followed all this time for two years. And there it was. It was shining down on this one little house. I can see their surprised looks on their faces, right? I mean, they probably looked at the house, looked at the star, looked at the house, thinking, no, I mean... This is not the house of a king. I mean, this is nothing like the palace we just left of Herod. The star, we must have, we must have taken a wrong turn back there, right, guys? But no, the star was shining on this house. I can see them getting off their camels, right? And, and one of them going to the door kind of hesitantly, maybe knocking on the door before going in. And then another look of shock, Right? as they adjust their eyes, as they look into this little house and they see an ordinary kid, this little boy sitting on the lap of a poor woman. Man, can you imagine? You know, they knew that they, knew that they were in the presence 
of something that could not be explained. They thought about the star, obviously supernatural. And although the boy in front of them looked like any other boy, we know that he had a presence about him that they could not deny, and they could not deny that this was the king that they had sought. You know, Matthew tells us, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. All of their hesitation gone. Any doubt they had erased. They fell down and they worshipped in that tiny little room. These magi, these Gentiles, they encountered the very presence of God and they responded in total surrender. These wealthy dressed, these wealthy, well-dressed men from the royal courts fell to their knees before a tiny child held in his mother's laps. That is true humility. That is faith. They saw and they recognized that they were in the midst of a king far more powerful than Herod could ever make of himself. You know, Matthew's text continues... It tells us that then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Not only did these magi worship by falling to their knees, they also opened their treasures and they gave him all they had. I'd have to say that the guys who left there that day were not the same ones who entered the door of that tiny house You know, instead of returning to Persia with chests full of earthly treasures, they returned with a new kind of hope, a hope that was born of the realization that the universe, the God of the very universe, he had reached out to them, right? The God of the universe reached out and he called to them, and he did it in the only way that they would understand, through a star. And that by following that star, they had been given the opportunity to sit at the feet and to worship the greatest gift the world has ever seen. So let's think about these people that we have just looked at. You know, on the one hand over here, you got King Herod, right? You have King Herod in his beautiful palace. And we left him back in that beautiful palace, pacing back and forth in his throne room, trying to outrun his anxiety. You know, on the, on the other hand, we've got the Magi, right? In this little run-down house on their knees before a tiny child in a poor woman's lap. You've got Herod, right? You've got Herod, the man of power and wealth and of all the things of the world. And you have the Magi on the other hand. You know, they knew of things of this world too, but they now understood that there had to be something more. Herod was afraid. He was afraid because he knew he could lose everything. And yet the Magi were at peace, having given everything because because what they sought, they had found, and what they had found was a relationship that would never end So in the beginning, when I started this evening, you know, I told you that my intent in the original sermon 
was to get, your, get you to put yourself into the Matthew text. That I wanted you to become a part of this story. And I find, you know, tonight, just as I did when I originally wrote this, I can see myself there. And I wish I could tell you that I'm way more magi than I am Herod. <laughs> now, I have my good days. I have a lot of good days. But I also have the days when I fail to recognize Jesus as my king. I have days where I'm just way too comfortable in my kingdom, the kingdom that I created, feeling safe, feeling comfortable, right, in my palace, and just too paranoid to give that up. In the first sermon, Sermon A, <laughs> my intent was to, to leave everyone with, you know, a question for you to ponder. That's what everyone does at the end, right? Leave you with a question to ponder. And it would have been, truthfully, a pretty easy, you know, it's kind of like we've talked about New Year's resolutions, right? So I would have left you with something like, how am I going to give of myself this year? Like the Magi, right? What can I take from my treasure chest? And what do I have to offer to God? And, you know, there's nothing wrong with asking ourselves those questions, but... Unfortunately, because of Sermon 2, you know, the question is a little more difficult. Question A would probably, you'd have thought about it for about 20 seconds right before thinking, hey, what are we going to eat when this is over? You know, you think she's almost done because, yeah, that's about how long the question would have lasted. But I hope you put some thought into the other question. As you think about Herod over here, you think about the Magi over here. I want you to think about where you find your scale tipping. Herod insisted on being in complete control. Magi were willing to follow this star, right, wherever it went. Herod did whatever it took to get what he wanted. I mean, he didn't care if he hurt other people in the process. And yet the Magi were willing to completely humble themselves, and they fell to their knees in an act of complete submission. Herod was just a driven person, right? He was driven, and he just wanted to hang on to his stuff, his titles, his success, his money. And the Magi didn't hesitate to open their treasure chest and give it all to him. Herod, or the Magi, Magi, Herod, I mean, only you know where your scale is tonight. You know, I'd like to think, and I thought this when I preached this before, but I'd like to think that we would all leave here feeling all magi-y, and that is a made-up word. Don't go looking it up. But I'd like to think we would leave here feeling all magi-y, and I know that's not necessarily the case. That it could be like I do, Maybe you find your scale, your scale tipping in a direction you don't really like. But the good news, the awesome news for us tonight is that that baby, that little boy that we talked about, he was not just born for the magi of this world. He was born for the Herods too. 
And that does not, however, mean that we get to get comfortable in those palaces. It means we don't get to leave here all depressed because we have things we need to work on. God will work on those with us. That's the good news. We just have to realize how comfy our throne is, and we got to get out of it. Um, this past year has been a difficult one for me because I really haven't felt where my direction was. And I think that's kind of because I did become too comfy, too comfy um, with identity, with title, with control. And I think that's why this is a detour sermon to get me back on the right path. You know, I need to get out of that palace. I need to chase after him. I'm going to close um, tonight with just some sh- a short bit of lyrics. It's from a song called Lay It Down. It's sung by a woman named uh, Lauren Daigle. And I could not find anything better, any there is no better way than to use her words. I couldn't write them any better. She says, God, I give you all I can today. These scattered ashes that are hid away, I lay them all at your feet. From the corners of my deepest shame, the empty places where I've worn your name, show me the love I say I believe. Oh, help me to lay it down. Oh, Lord, I'll lay it down. Oh, let this be where I die. My Lord with thee, crucified. Be lifted high as my kingdoms fall, once and for all, once and for all. So my prayer for for all of us tonight is that we would be able to acknowledge those Herod traits in ourselves, but that we would be willing to lay them down, that we would be willing to let our kingdoms fall and that we would eventually find ourselves right where I wanted to put us in that first sermon. Yeah. May we indeed find that we are more like the Magi, that we are searching for the Christ and we're ready to fall to our knees and to give him all that we have. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire to be esteemed, from the desire to be loved, from the desire to be honored, from the desire to be praised, from the desire to be preferred to others, from the desire to be consulted, from the desire to be approved, and from the desire to be popular. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of being rebuked, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, and from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being treated unfairly, and from the fear of being suspected. And dear Jesus, grant me the grace to desire that others might be more loved than I, that others might be more esteemed than I, that in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I decrease, that others may be chosen and I set aside, 
that others may be preferred to me in everything, that others might become holier than I, provided that I, too, become as holy as I can. Go in peace.